This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. Julian Castro has been many things. Mayor of San Antonio, Secretary of Housing and Urban Development during the Obama administration, author of An Unlikely Journey, Waking Up from My American Dream, 2018 presidential candidate, and now is hosting the new podcast, Our America. He's a brilliant advocate for making sure everyone who is searching can find the American dream. And I'm so very happy to have him on the show today. I am nominating another all-star who's done a fantastic job in San Antonio over the past five years, Mayor Julian Castro. I wanted to come today and let you in on a little secret. I am running for president. <laughs> I'm asking you to join me. You give me your support, and I give you my word. I will spend every day working hard to make sure that you can get a good job. Father and his young daughter drowned at the border in search of a better life. Watching that image of, of Oscar and his daughter Valeria uh, is heartbreaking. It should also piss us all off. His cruelty has failed, and I think that we need to go in the direction of exercising common sense and compassion instead of cruelty. Hey, I'm Julian Castro, and I'm fighting for an America where everyone counts. Sorry, not sorry. Secretary Castro, thank you so, so much for being here. I'm such a huge fan of yours. I think, besides the fact that you're just awesome, it's so interesting to me because you've worn so many different hats in your career. Mayor, HUD secretary, author, presidential candidate. <laughs> what has been in your opinion, the most important lesson that you've taken from all of these different jobs that you've had? Yeah, I think the most important lesson I've taken is that we can actually make good, positive change in people's lives by participating in the democratic process. I grew up with a mom who was an activist. She was part of the Mexican-American civil rights movement. She was a hellraiser when she was young. She got an activist. And from her, I really took the idea that progress takes time but that you can make progress if you keep pushing and pushing and do everything that we should do. Get out there and organize, vote, take on big interests that too often get their way. So I'd say my biggest lesson has been if you keep at it, you can make good positive change in people's lives. It's interesting because I have actually been thinking a lot about this very thing in regards to activism, which feels like... It is about, I don't know, maybe 98% heartache and disappointment. 
<laughs> That's true. Right? And 2% maybe glory, but even the 2% of glory is like just a little incremental thing that keeps you going. But I think it's so interesting when you think about those whose shoulders that we stand on, right? And how a lot of them didn't really get to see what they were fighting for come into fruition. Like I think about Alice Paul, who wrote the Equal Rights Amendment, and that was 1923 that she wrote that. And here we are, however many years later, and we're still trying to make that happen. So I feel nowadays that you sort of just have to be comfortable planting the seed and maybe never ever seeing it grow into a tree. And that has to be okay. I think we're so results oriented. We want immediate gratification. So I think it's especially hard to know that we're potentially just planting seeds that we may never see come into fruition. And I'm just starting to realize that after 30 years of activism. That's absolutely true. I think of people in different generations who worked hard to get our country to live up to its greatest ideals or people around the world who oftentimes worked in even harsher circumstances with even more inequality, who didn't get to see the fruits of their labor. The double curse there or unfairness is that not only did they work very hard to plant those seeds and make progress, but oftentimes, as you know, our history books don't tell their stories. People right. studying in high school or a lot of times even college, you know, and take any number of movements, whether it was the LGBTQ movement, the civil rights movement, the women's rights movement, too oftentimes those stories aren't told. Well, you've just launched a new podcast called Our America. Will you tell us a little bit about it? First, tell me about the name. I want to know what Our America means to you. To me, Our America speaks to the America that we are and most importantly, the America that I think we can become. I'm doing this podcast because over the last six years, I've been on the road everywhere. I think I've traveled to over 100 different communities, big and small, over 40 states. And I heard a tremendous number of stories from people who are struggling, who are striving, some of them reaching their dreams, many of them not, but struggling to do so. And I wanted to tell their stories in a realistic, but also hopeful way, in a humanizing way, and in the context of a conversation with the listener about how we can actually improve things, how we can make America an even better country. Well, one of your persistent and defining messages is about making the American dream accessible to everyone. What is the American dream now? That's a great question. I'd like to think that today the American dream is not only material, right? Because for a long time, the shorthand version of the American dream was owning a home and owning a car. And hopefully our notion of the American dream involves some measure of success, but also of happiness. For the first time in American history, the majority of parents do not think that their kids will be better off than they were. This is true of rich and poor, men and women. Now, some of you might hear this and feel sad. After all, America is deeply invested in this idea of economic transcendence, that every generation kind of leapfrogs the one before it, earning more, buying more, being more. We've exported this dream all over the world, so kids in Brazil and China and even Kenya inherit our insatiable expectation for more. Being able to attain that which makes you happy 
for some people, that's owning the home and owning the car. For other folks, that's not quite as important, but there are other ways that they want to be fulfilled. Being able to pursue the career that they want, spend their time in a productive way like they want to, time with their family, any number of things. I think that we'll have matured as a nation when our notion of the American dream goes beyond just the material things and to a notion of that which fulfills us and makes us happy. Well, I think because the country is struggling financially and because there is such an economic divide, it is very hard to find that kind of fulfillment and happiness when you're worried about how to get food on the table or working so many jobs that you cannot appreciate even your family. And I think the biggest problem we're facing right now as a nation and why it is so hard for people to achieve whatever the American dream is. And maybe it's relative for everyone. I mean, I certainly get a certain amount of fulfillment that I think is different than feeling content in a job or feeling that I could support my family. And I've never looked at those things as being the American dream. But I will say this, the generational not only struggle, but where my family has come from, from grandparents to my parents who had very little, to me who was able to get a job at seven years old, work successfully, that could be considered the American dream, especially since my grandparents are immigrants. But now it just feels like it's so hard for people to achieve the American dream. And I guess the question is, why do you think that is? Well, I think that at least for the last 40 years that we've had these policies in place that essentially help the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. A glance at incomes tells the story. Since 1979, a 200% rise for the top one percenters. The gap with everybody else widening, especially for middle-income households earning between forty-two dollars and $82,000. Everything from trickle-down economics, a tax code that rewards people who are already wealthy, rewards big corporations, and at the same time, the minimum wage is hardly raised. I mean, the last time it was raised was 2009. Wages have not kept up with the productivity of American workers. Our education system has failed so many young people so over many. the years. At the same time that jobs often require more knowledge than before, more skills than before. So just think across the board, somewhere along the way, we fundamentally lost this commitment or intensity of commitment to a public well-being. I don't think it's an accident that that happened in large part after the civil rights movement. First, you had exclusion of certain people by what they looked like. And then once you had laws in place, whether it was the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, the Fair Housing Act of the 60s that tried to get people on a level playing field, you had this revolt against the kind of public investment that we had had before, whether it was in public housing, public education, minimum wage, healthcare opportunity. All of a sudden, that commitment is not there or diminished. And what I believe is that we need to be able to get beyond our differences and see that we can be a stronger nation if we have that kind of commitment again. The commitment that was there, at least for certain groups of people before. This 
This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Right now we're living in a time when the rich are getting richer for sure. The poor are getting poorer, for sure. The middle class is shrinking. And to me, this seems like the exact opposite of what we want to achieve, right? So how do we change the philosophy that that's okay? And then how do we fix the inequalities in the country? Which is a huge task, right? And I don't think it's going to happen overnight. But I do believe that it requires all of us as Americans seeing ourselves as being in the same boat and fundamentally belonging to the same community. But it feels like we are so far away from that. Like, how do we even get to that? You know what? There's this great analogy that I often use. I have horses at my house. And when we introduce a new horse to the herd, there is always this potential of the rest of the herd that's been here for a while not accepting in this new horse. The way that we get them to accept in this new horse is to make a noise, crack a whip, and get them all running together. The idea being, if they're all fearing the same thing, they can't recognize their differences. So I use this a lot. I mean, it works on a set. I would imagine it would work in any elected office that we really bond as human beings when we have something that we fear that is common. I would have thought for sure that this administration, that Trump and the pandemic and all of these things, which would symbolize the crack of the whip or the danger that we're putting the herd of Americans in, would somehow make us bonded together more. And yet it feels like the exact opposite has happened. I know people talk a lot about uniting the country. Do you think we even need to unite the country? Do you think it's going to be impossible to do at this point? And if everything that we're facing right now in this country is not going to be the thing that unites us back together, what the fuck is it going to take? One of the big problems that we have right now with uniting is a president who's absolutely determined to divide because he believes that's his best chance to win re-election. Are you willing tonight to condemn white supremacists and militia groups yeah. and to say that they need to stand down and not add to the violence in a number of these cities, as we saw in Kenosha and as we've seen in Portland. Sure, Are you I'm prepared to, to do specifically that, do it? Well, I, would ahead, say, I would say almost everything I see is from the left wing, not from the right so wing. So what, what, you, you what are you saying? I'm, I'm willing to do anything. I want to see well, peace. Then do it, sir. Say I'm, it. Do it. Say it. You want to call them... What do you want to call them? Give me a name. Give me a white name. Supremacists and right like me to white supremacists and right proud boys. White supremacists and right proud boys. Stand back and stand by. He's been divisive since before he was a politician. Trickle down division. Yeah. And so 
I believe that you're right, that there was a potential for this pandemic to bring us closer together as a country. That happened briefly, I think, after 9-11. But even then, I mean, it was problematic because Muslim Americans, many would tell a different story of that. So even then, even as much of the country felt closer together, there was still this group that was scapegoated. In the pandemic, I think that without Trump, if this had happened without Trump, if this had happened with a quote unquote normal president, Democrat or Republican from the last few years, that the country actually would have been more united and you wouldn't have had somebody so publicly stoking things like conspiracy theories or the uselessness of masks, things like that, that just gave fuel to this anti-government, anti-authority fire that I think has helped polarize people during this pandemic. With one man dead following dueling demonstrations in Portland, President Trump took to Twitter at least a dozen times, blasting the mayor as incompetent, calling for the National Guard, and praising Trump supporters as great patriots who rolled into the city. Doesn't that heighten tension when you say you're trying to lower it? Going forward, I feel like the first step is to replace this president with somebody who can actually unite the country or try to bring us back together, who has respect for our fundamental institutions as a democracy and what we're supposed to be about, that which has provided more stability over the generations for this country versus a lot of other countries out there. And then if we're just talking mechanically, like we need to make some reforms that will help bring us closer together instead of tear us apart. Like these politicians should not be selecting their congressional districts, right, or gerrymandering so that instead of these very, very split congressional districts, you have people that have to appeal to the other side, sometimes not districts that are so gerrymandered that everybody stays in their camp all the time. And we really do need to find ways to better understand where we're all coming from. That's why, you know, we talked a little while ago about people learning the history of different individuals who have made contributions, different cultures that have made contributions to our American progress. I really am convinced that we need to raise a generation of Americans that has a better understanding of our diverse nation and the contributions and cultures that have helped make it the nation that it is today, that if you do that, you foster an understanding that is going to help people later in life to actually get along better, to be less polarized to not automatically just go into their camps, to not fall for the kind of stuff that Trump is trying to pull right now, trying to scare up fear in the suburbs about people of color moving into the suburbs, right? First of all, women in the suburbs are terrified of the pandemic or their kid getting shot at school, okay? This man is so out of touch. Yeah, no, I mean, I do agree that I think he sells short people who are living in the suburbs. First of all, the suburbs look different, many of them today, than they did 50 years ago. Yeah, what does that even mean? Like, what do you think that means to him that he keeps using it? Well, I mean, I think he's like stuck in Richard Nixon mode. I thought from his very first campaign and the people that were around it, they were literally people around Richard Nixon. Now, they were more junior at that time. But yeah, I mean, the closest analog that I see is with Richard Nixon. And this is very Nixonian, this silent majority appealing to basically white fear and this notion that is stuck in at least the late 1960s, if not before then, 
that white people are just sitting out there trying to figure out how they can keep black people out of their neighborhood. Look, I'm sure that that exists to some extent, but I really do believe that he's selling people short. I think that we have made some progress over the last 50 years. And I believe that that's actually going to backfire against him because people fundamentally don't want to be divided that way. Right. Well, you were the mayor of San Antonio, and right now mayors around the country seem to be under attack from the Trump administration. It's declared New York, Portland, and Seattle anarchy jurisdictions. The attorney general even suggested that the mayor of Seattle should be tried for sedition. The New York Times says Attorney General William Barr singled out Seattle Mayor Jenny Durkin as responsible for the violence that unfolded in a zone where police steered clear. Uh, They're saying that the mayor um, may have violated criminal statutes and very serious criminal statutes simply based on the discretionary decisions that she made, where to deploy the police, when to pull them back. Barr also wants rioters charged with sedition, trying to overthrow the government. It's a statute constitutional law professor Andy Siegel calls archaic. I mean, basically, it is a junior varsity treason charge. For her part, Durkin accuses the Trump administration of using the Justice Department for political purposes just weeks away from an election, saying it is particularly egregious to try to use the civil rights laws to investigate, intimidate or deter those that are fighting for civil rights in our country. By the way, what is sedition? I mean, I don't know what it is to him in this context because there's no sedition there. It's just amazing how Trump is able to create his own reality. I don't know whether this is coming from Fox News or some other right wing network, whatever he's watching or listening to. I mean, it feels like he's got a staff of writers like a television show. And they're just coming up with the most ridiculous things and everyone saying, no, we can't do that. That's crazy. And yet here we are doing it. And it's unbelievable. Maybe the scariest part is that you actually do have a slice of Americans that follow it, that believe it, that are being fed these conspiracy theories every day on YouTube or Facebook or other social media platforms. I've been surprised at how much, for instance, the QAnon stuff has penetrated into people's mind. And you wonder where they're getting this and where they're getting it mostly is from Facebook and perhaps YouTube. It's that saturated for a lot of folks. And once you start going down the rabbit hole, it just gets worse and worse. That rabbit hole as a mother is so terrifying. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. For all of these reasons, I actually believe we need to make a stronger commitment in our country to civic education, understanding history, understanding, as I said, the diverse contributions of different people and communities in the country so that our young people, and then as they grow into adults, are more inoculated against falling for some of this stuff. Exactly. That's exactly right. But they prey on the young people that they know will fall for this, right? It's the same thing as any cult. They give them a group of like-minded people and they make whatever that like-mindedness is accessible and okay, acceptable. But I want to go back. Can you first of all just explain to my listeners the role of mayors in America? Well, I mean, mayors are those that are charged with making sure that cities operate the way they should. A lot of it is basic stuff. 
from street maintenance to garbage pickup to fire and police protection, but also mayors play this greater role of being, in a symbolic way, the community mother or father figure of trying to look out for the entire community and everything from economic development and selling a community for investment to those times of tragedy, whether it's a natural disaster like a flood or an earthquake or tornado or something else, being the one that is working hard on behalf of the community to repair it, to lead that effort. So to me, it was the honor of my lifetime to be mayor of San Antonio because I was born in the city. I grew up in the city. I came back after law school to the city and I had a chip on my shoulder about San Antonio. I didn't see when my brother and I went off to college and law school, that many people from my community that had made it to those places. You know, we went to Stanford for college and then Harvard for law school. And there weren't that many folks who had grown up like we did in the public schools of the city who had those kinds of opportunities. And I wanted to come back so that the city could become the kind of place where more people would have those opportunities. And that's what was great about, for me, the opportunity to be mayor. And for those that may not know, we have an election coming up. We hear a lot about down-ballot races. I just want you for a minute to talk about how very, very important local elected officials are to a community. Local elected officials are so important these days. We need to be encouraging local candidates. I couldn't agree more. I mean, that was a Newt Gingrich's strategy on the conservative side or the Koch brothers' strategy. And they said, we need to be running people in school boards and state legislators and a board of supervisors. And it's not just about focusing on Congress and it's not just about focusing on the Senate or the presidency. And unfortunately, they built a very uh, successful network of conservatives elected at uh, very different levels. And we need to replicate that on the progressive side. A lot of the issues that we actually think about as national issues are swayed at the local level. A good example of that is reimagining public safety or reforming policing. Police union contracts, they get negotiated at the local level by the mayor and the city council. Police department budgets are set by the city council. Policies with regard to discipline, accountability, transparency, those are mostly set by the city council or the city and to some extent by state legislatures, but a lot of it is local. The other reason is local communities are still, by and large, this place where people of different ideologies, different parties, are willing to roll up their sleeves and get things done. It's not logjammed like Washington, D.C. It's not as highly partisanized as Washington, D.C. And that means that you can accomplish some good things. When I was mayor, of San Antonio, for instance, the thing that I'm most proud of is that we got the voters to approve a one-eighth cent sales tax increase for something called pre-K for SA. It was expanding high-quality full-day pre-K to four-year-olds in our city over eight years. Real, tangible, concrete results for people and their children. Those are the kinds of things that can happen when we get things done at the local level. And that's why it's important to elect great folks at the local level. Don't skip it on the ballot because I know November's coming up and a lot of people, they walk in that voting booth and they're like, yeah, you know, I got Joe Biden. I got whoever the Senate Yeah, Go all the way to the end. But that's why I'm kind of excited that there are so many people that will be voting from home and by mail, because I'm hoping that there will be more conversations around the kitchen table that there will be more research that goes into their ballot. Listen, I'm dyslexic. I go into a polling booth and I get 
almost like a panic attack. And so I totally get this idea of like, I'm just going to go in and vote for president. But maybe, just maybe, just like when you see in Colorado and Washington and Oregon, these states that offer mail-in and voting as being the norm and voting rates go up, maybe this will be something that we can look back on and say, well, you know what we got out of that? We got that everyone now is offering mail-in voting with no excuse needed to get their absentee ballot. So I'm hopeful that that change will help. And also, like, I think it's important that our kids see us vote. Yeah. And I mean, hopefully, if there's a silver lining that comes out of this pandemic, it will be, as you say, that more people will have some time, will have more time to do research, more time to sit down and cajole some family members that usually don't go vote into voting because everybody's kind of huddled in the house these days. And it'll be more convenient because more folks will do it by mail. I hope also that we keep this and that more states have expanded voting by mail in the future. What I believe is that people should have all options. If somebody wants to vote by mail, that should be available. If they want to go vote early in person, that should be available. If they want to vote on Election Day, although I don't recommend it because you never know what's going to happen, but they want to go vote on Election Day in person, they should be able to do that too. I like the idea of making it not just a day, but that it's election season, right? Because there's early voting, there's mail-in voting. It's not necessarily just about the day anymore. And I think that that will help as well, because sometimes people can't make it on the day, right? And we refuse to make it a holiday. So I'm hopeful that the turnout's going to be really great. You were Secretary of Housing and Urban Development during the Obama administration. And I think about what those cabinet meetings must be like. Can you take us inside a cabinet meeting? They're such an important part of governing that we really never get that much insight into. A cabinet meetings are one of those settings where you sort of feel both the ceremonial aspect, historical aspect of the office and also the weight of the office because everybody's there in the cabinet room in the West Wing with the president. It's a formal setting and you have each of these agencies and departments represented. Well, uh, I just had my first official cabinet meeting. Uh, We have one future cabinet member missing, but uh, everybody else is, is president accounted for. Uh, I delivered uh, a few messages. Number one, uh, I am extraordinarily proud of the talent, the diversity, and the work ethic of this team. Uh, In uh, an unprecedented situation where we had to hit the ground running and get an enormous amount done in the first three months, Uh, everybody here has performed, uh, I think, at the highest levels. You can easily imagine generations past and what it must have looked like 100 years ago, 150 years ago for a president to sit in there with their advisors or department heads like that. 
And the thing about President Obama was that he's always the smartest guy in the room. He is somebody that you don't need generally to explain things to that has done his research, understands the issues. Not only that, has the right heart for the work, is committed to actually making people's lives better. And so it's not even a question like we have these days of whether the president is going to do the right thing. It's how do we help make sure we're doing our part as a department head and the entire department is doing our part to fulfill the vision that this president has. That's always what was top of mind. Look, by the time you get in there, are you doing what you're supposed to be doing on any number of different initiatives that the president wants done and that are good for the country so that we can move this thing forward? Do you think that all of that went into your decision to run for president? Yeah, of course. You know, after I served as mayor and then had the opportunity to serve as HUD secretary, my service at HUD gave me a much more nuanced and broader also sense of the country because I traveled so much to so many different communities and got a sense of how different communities are approaching different problems and how they're doing and both the similarities and the differences in a number of communities. I just felt like I had a better sense of our country and its potential and a stronger vision for what we needed to do in the future. I also think that Barack Obama inspired a lot of people along the way. I mean, he continues to. And the good news is that each of us in our own way, whatever we're doing, whether it's in your company or it's in your nonprofit or it's in public service, you can also inspire folks to go out and reach for their dreams. Absolutely. And I think that we need to get back to a place where we have mentors. Being a mentor is the most important gift you can give someone. I consider my mentor Senator Pat Spearman from Nevada, but I also have a group of kids that I mentor that are young activists, and it's some of my most rewarding work. But when I think about, and just to go back to you running for president for a second, when I think about what that process must be like, A, exhausting. (laughs) That's true. I mean, were you exhausted all the time? It just seems like you're always moving. I look at guys like Joe, where they're like, well, he's losing it. No, he is not. You're the 300th person he's talked to today. Yeah, no, I mean, everybody on there, Vice President Biden, just tremendous energy, Bernie, tremendous energy. In order to swim in that stream, you have to have a certain level of energy and commitment to the whole thing. The way that I thought about it along the way was, And it's kind of the way that I'm thinking about the next six weeks until the election, because these days I'm doing a lot of Zooms and fundraisers for candidates. I'm sure you're doing a lot, too. You just got to give yourself over to the whole thing and just think you're not going to have a life, basically, or not much of one outside of this. But that's the kind of commitment that it takes, as you know. I mean, people, whether in sports, in business, in politics, in the arts, will tell you that look, you're running for president of the United States. That's like anything else. If you're going to win an Academy Award or you're going to win an Olympic medal or whatever it is, you're competing against some of the best people in that endeavor. And in politics, the added element is that you're also trying to convince voters to go out and vote for you if you're trying to run faster or you're perfecting your role as an actor. You're selling a product. That's what makes politics different. It's that the judges are the people. At the same time, you got to have your own internal commitment. So yeah, but all in all, it was fun. So you like the sound of your own voice? Any politician (laughs) that says that they had no ego in politics is lying. There's always... (laughs) at least a little bit of ego involved. But I think overall that that's probably, if it's measured 
in the right amount is probably yeah, good. It's healthy. Because that keeps people going and committed and so forth. But the people that are the ones we should elect are the ones where ego is a small percentage. And the bigger percentage is you're in it to help everybody else, not help yourself. You have a situation with Gutter uh, where allegedly they didn't go through with a transaction with the Trump family and then they got punished uh, by the U.S. government. You have a situation with China where the president originally said he was going to revisit one China policy and when he decided not to, Ivanka gets trademarks. Uh, he decided to, through his Treasury Department, sanction the Chinese firm ZTE. He reverses course when China makes a $500 million investment in a Trump-branded property in Indonesia. There is so much evidence of corruption by President Trump and his allies, just a fraction of which was detailed there by Adam Schiff. We could do a whole show, honestly, on corruption every single night. We do get people like Donald Trump that I think it's 99% ego and 1% maybe to do something for other people. I don't think he's well. I think that he has probably some sort of narcissistic personality disorder. I don't think it's just ego. Something's going on, yeah. Something definitely is out there. So I want to just talk to you briefly about there are a lot of polls that show Texas might be a swing state this year and is trending blue. Do you think Texas is going to vote for Joe Biden? Yeah, I think it's very real. The possibility that Texas will go blue. The November election is gaining steam and all eyes are on the prize of Texas. I would imagine that the president should be favored to win Texas, but by less than probably four percentage points. KHOU political analyst Bob Stein says recent polls show it's a tight race between President Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Look, there's some people that are kind of jaded on this because it seems like every four years they're here that this might be the year when Texas goes blue. Here's what's different in 2020. Number one, the trend. 2016, Hillary lost by nine points. That was the closest anybody had gotten since 1996. In 2018, we took back two congressional seats in the suburbs of Houston and Dallas. We took back 12 state House seats. And then Beto O'Rourke got within two and a half points of Ted Cruz in the U.S. Senate race. And then you fast forward to 2020, and something like 10 or 12 different polls have showed this race between Joe Biden and Donald Trump tied. And some of them have even showed Biden up by one or two points. And it's like 46-48 or 47-47. It's not 39-39 where, you know, you think, okay, 39-39, but really given the history of the state, the rest of the people that are out there that say they're undecided, maybe they just kind of don't like Trump, but they're going to come home to the Republican Party. I mean, it's a very close race. So I do think that it can go blue this year. You have two dynamics. The fact that the suburbs are leaving the Republican Party in the Trump era and also the demographic changes that have happened in the state, the growth of the Latino community, the growth of the Asian American community, the fact that people are moving in from California, from Florida, from other places. All of those things are coming together to make the state a lot more competitive. So having served in multiple levels of American government, in your view, what is the most important role of government? I think the most basic role of government is to keep people safe. That's the most basic role of government. If the government does not achieve that, then people would tear even more at the idea that we should be banded together as a people. So I think that's the most basic level, and that's probably influenced by the local level where basic services were one of the things we were focused on. 
But what I've always gotten excited about in terms of my public service has been the role of government to help people achieve their dreams. Mm. And that means that people have the kind of education that they need, that people get the kind of health care that they need, the kind of housing opportunity that they need, and the kind of job opportunities that they need, and that you do it treating people the same way. That's what I've gotten excited about. In fact, I remember when I was thinking about running for office the first time, because I ran when I was 26 to city council, people expect you to be almost only focused on potholes and drainage and their sidewalks and some other things that I think are great, like parks and libraries. But to me, I always wanted to go beyond that, that if it had only been those things that you could work on in local government, it probably would not have interested me enough. I wanted to see, okay, what role can we take improving educational opportunity for people? What role can we take in lifting up neighborhoods that have been long forgotten for the benefit of the people who live in those neighborhoods? So I've always tried to see how government can be used in a positive way to help people achieve their dream. That's beautiful. And my last question is in these trying times, I mean, we're fighting on so many different levels, so many different abuses and oppression. It feels really big. It feels really, really big. What gives you hope? What gives me hope is what I've seen in so many people along the way over the years. I fundamentally believe that people are good-hearted and people want other people to succeed And I'm hopeful that that's what's going to win out, that our better angels are what's going to win out. Hopeful about the November 3rd election, that that's going to happen. And then that beyond that, we're going to start getting back on the right track. Well, I want to live in your America. Thanks for being a part of this. And if I can ever return the favor, please let me know. Throughout our nation's history, even in its darkest days, there have always been patriots who came together to do the hard work that it took to get us closer to our nation's ideals. Those who fought to abolish slavery, suffragists who marched and organized for a woman's right to vote. A generation that sat in at lunch counters and marched across the Edmund Pettus Bridge. The activists at Stonewall. Those who inspired a generation that is marching for our lives today. People who challenged us to continue to perfect our union. You and I, we stand on their shoulders. Generations of men and women who made beds and made sacrifices, who fought in wars and fought discrimination, who picked crops and also stood in picket lines. They didn't wait. They made our nation what it is today. Now it's our turn to take that baton and to make our nation better than it's ever been before. One of the biggest problems in America today is that for so many people, the American dream is just not attainable. The barriers to achieving it are huge. From educational and financial to systemic racism and patriarchal systems, millions are left outside looking in. And the people who have access to the most wealth do everything they can to make sure they continue to be the few who possess it. I mean, think about this. 
fucking Jeff Bezos could give away $100 billion and still have almost $100 billion in the bank. In order to get that $100 billion, the average American worker would have to work for 2.5 million years. America is one of the wealthiest nations in the history of the world, but that wealth is so concentrated at the top, hoarded by the richest and most powerful, that it may as well just not exist. It's something that the next president, which I know is going to be Joe Biden, is going to have to tackle if the American experiment has any chance of succeeding. There are things that each one of us can do, though. We can shop in our communities, at local shops and businesses. We can invest in local banks. We can keep our money where we live instead of the pockets of the Waltons and the Bezos family and the Trumps. Your dollars shape your world. Give them to people who matter. So when you go to buy Julian Castro's book after hearing this episode, go to your local bookshop. Buy from your farmer's market or local CSA instead of ordering Whole Foods delivery. And take care of your community instead of the incredibly rich. Trust me, they don't need your money. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry.